Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this conversation, we are very excited to have an episode related to linguistics with one of the language professors of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, that is Dr. Josh Wilson. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Wilson. Thanks, Austin. Glad to be on the show. Yeah, we've had you on, uh, it's probably been a number of years ago now, to talk about uh, Old Testament studies, um, and we want to have you back to talk about Genesis 1-1. Perhaps at the end of uh, this episode, we'll talk about implications of our translation of Genesis 1-1, but that's the topic of our discussion today. Uh, Genesis 1-1, specifically, we're going to be talking about the Hebrew in Genesis 1-1 and um, how you think it should be translated. But before we uh, begin to have linguistic conversations, uh, can you reintroduce yourself to our audience since it has been a number of years uh, since you've been on? Sure. Um, my name is Josh Wilson. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, my wife is Sarah. We've been married for 20 years. We have eight children. Um, our oldest is 18, getting ready to go on to college. And I checked out the math. It's it's correct. I am that old. I, I don't believe it, but I am that old. Um, our youngest is five years old. Uh, we live in Park Hills, Missouri, southeast Missouri. And um, I pastor the First Baptist Church of Park Hills. And uh, Austin, as you said, I'm a professor of uh, Hebrew at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Um I, I went to Southern Seminary to get my MDiv, and, um, and then in 2010, graduated with a, a PhD in Old Testament. Well, Dr. Wilson, it is a joy to have you on the show today and to meet you for the first time virtually. Praise God for technology and for the gift that allows Amen. the church to enjoy and, and meeting brothers in Christ across the world. Um, our conversation today is, uh, as Austin noted, uh, the subject of translating and interpreting Genesis 1-1. And uh, Dr. Wilson, just to get our conversation rolling toward that direction, uh, would you be willing to share some insights as to why there's debate over how Genesis 1-1 should be translated and, and, and maybe even how that impacts transla- uh, interpretation based on that translation? Sure, sure thing, Dewey. <clears throat> so most people don't realize that there's... I guess, a modern-day controversy over how to translate Genesis 1-1. I mean, we know it as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, however, <clears throat> about a thousand years ago, a medieval Jewish rabbi by the name of Solomon ben Isaac, and he's known as Rashi for short, proposed that instead of going with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which we would call the traditional translation, it makes Genesis 1-1 an independent clause, he suggested that we translate it as, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. And so that makes Genesis 1-1 now a dependent clause. And you know, if anybody has had <clears throat> English class, they know that dependent clauses have to be dependent upon other clauses, like other main clauses. <clears throat> and so what would Genesis 1-1, what clause would it be dependent upon? Well, today 
most scholars would say if they hold to this <clears throat> dependent clause translation, they would say that Genesis 1-1 is dependent upon Genesis 1-3, where you would say, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, he said, let there be light. And then they would say that Genesis 1-2 is kind of a parenthetical comment about the stuff that was already there before God started the process of creating the heavens and the earth. So that's kind of implications for uh, interpretation. Uh, Genesis 1-2 is matter, pre-existing matter that is already there when God begins the process of creating. And we, we see this um, translation showing up in some translation traditions. So let me give you three. Um, the Revised Standard Version in 1952 translated Genesis 1-1 as uh, an independent clause. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in their new Revised Standard Version in 1989, they translated it now as in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Um, we see that with um, kind of a Catholic uh, translational tradition. So their Dewey Rhymes Bible, it was uh, put out, I think, in the 18, late 1800s. Um, Genesis 1-1 was an independent clause. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then their New American Bible um, says, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. And then a Jewish traditional uh, or uh, translational tradition, um, the Jewish Publication Society Bible that was first put out, I think it was 1917, had in the, all caps, both of those words, all caps, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm, I'm wondering if they did that because they were attempting to say, hey, we're not following what Rashi suggested, uh, that medieval Jewish rabbi. But then in the 1960s, when they came out with their updated uh, version of the Old Testament, they changed the translation of Genesis 1-1 to when God began to create the heavens and the earth. And so um, I would say the main proponent of this dependent clause translation today is a guy by the name of Robert Holmstead. And um, he is a well-known Hebrew scholar. And he makes the case that there is no other possible alternative for translating Genesis 1-1 this way. It has to be translated as a dependent clause. Hmm. That's very helpful to get our conversation started. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. Uh, I was going to ask you, what is the traditional translation of Genesis 1-1? You've already gave us the answer to that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. So well, I can give uh, you, I can give you more as far as like why it's the traditional translation, if you'd like. Yeah, to. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> why is it the transition uh, traditional translation? And then um, why do you think after you give that answer, why do you think the traditional translation of Genesis one one is to be preferred? Sure. So um, the reason it's called the traditional translation is because it's over two thousand years old. So we we first see. Um, the Bible, uh, Genesis 1-1, translated this way, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth with the Septuagint. 
So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and Genesis 1-1 probably would have been translated in the 3rd century B.C. So that's as far back as the traditional translation goes. And we know that the Apostle John, uh, when he wrote his gospel uh, and started with John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, he was pulling from that understanding of Genesis 1-1 as an independent clause in the beginning. And then it's used by every ancient translation by people who were much more knowledgeable of the Hebrew at the time than we were or than we are. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the dependent clause translation that that these scholars are arguing for today and how they are arguing for it and how they are defining it. Those ancient translators were very familiar with the type of construction that um, these proponents are arguing for today. We see those ancient translators recognizing those constructions and translating accordingly in other passages of the Hebrew Bible, but they all treat Genesis 1-1 as an independent clause, these ancient translators. So it's got the best support, the traditional translation. And again, that's why it's called the traditional translation. And even uh, scholars who hold to the dependent clause translation will grant that this is the traditional translation, that it is more traditional. It's got the older, better attested uh, translations behind it. Uh, but I think the reason it's also to be preferred, so so that kind of answers the question, but it, it explains why it's to be preferred because it's old and it's it's been used the most. But another reason is it's the better option grammatically. And here's why I say this. The dependent clause translation is grammatically awkward. And I've argued that it's near impossible. The traditional translation is grammatically straightforward. It's simple. So open up a Bible and it makes sense. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. When you go to the dependent clause translation and you make especially Genesis 1-2 like this parenthetical comment, it's just very awkward the way it's worded. So um, I think those are the reasons that it is to be preferred. No, it's very helpful, Dr. Wilson. And uh, for the sake of the listener, in case your your head is spinning a little bit or you're not an expert in the biblical languages, I I uh, had a confession with Austin and, and Dr. Wilson before the recording started. Uh, sometimes I find myself in that boat when I get around real biblical languages experts. And um, uh, I, I know that this is a very important discipline. So listeners, stay with us. This is this is great stuff, and hopefully we'll aid you as you reflect on this portion of Scripture. But uh, with that in mind, Dr. Wilson, um, you've already spoken at length to the Dependent Clause translation of Genesis 1-1. Um, you, you've mentioned that you find it nearly impossible to hold to such an interpretation, uh, or I should say a translation, rather, of Genesis 1-1. Um, would you, just for the sake of playing devil's advocate and making sure that we're uh, aware of some of the best arguments presented for this way of translating Genesis 1-1, maybe give us some of those arguments that you've encountered in your study and further elaborate on some of your biggest qualms with it, although you've, you've kind of already said that uh, you find it to be just quite an impossible way of understanding uh, the opening verse of Scripture. Yeah, sure thing, Dewey. And uh, 
I would just start off by saying that the argument for the dependent clause translation is kind of multi-layered. So the first layer, I guess you could say, is kind of at the word level, at the meaning level. And uh, proponents of this view will zero in on the very first word of Genesis 1-1 in the Hebrew, which is Bereshit, where we get our translation in the beginning. And what they will do in focusing in on this word, which is basically beginning um, with a with a preposition attached to it, is they will say this word has a relative meaning. In other words, uh, Bereshit, beginning, cannot just in exist in and of itself. It has to relate to something. It has to be the beginning of something. And I think that's indisputable. So as I was examining these arguments, you know, I'm looking at that. And I'm, I grant that they are right. Bereshit is a noun that has to have a relative meaning. It meaning has to be, its meaning has to be related to something. Um, but they then take that argument a step further and they say, because this word has a relative meaning, it has to relate to something. It has to be the beginning of something. It then must also have a relative grammatical relationship. In other words, because it's grammatical, or I mean, because it's relative in meaning, there must be some other element in the verse that the word is related to grammatically. And so with respect to Genesis 1-1, they would say, okay, since it has a relative meaning, it's the beginning of something, then, then we are asking the question, in the beginning of what? Well, in the beginning of, and the grammatical thing it's related to is the next clause, in the beginning of God creating the heavens and the earth. And again, I think, that is a a valid argument, at least starting with the, the position that it has a relative meaning. That's valid. And I think this is actually the strongest part of the argument for the dependent clause translation. So that's the first layer. The second layer is more at like the clause level. And the focus is on the type of clause that this dependent clause would be. And I remember as I was researching this, I was looking at some of the earlier commentaries and they were wondering, is this kind of construction even possible? Um, and what they're talking about is a noun, like Bereshit, beginning, uh, relating to uh, a finite verb. So I'm uh, Dewey, I'm going to get a little nerdy here with respect to the language, but but. The question is, can a noun be in construct with a verb? And that that's just not something that's grammatically possible. However, as the arguments started to develop more, um, people began to, the, the these proponents began to realize that, okay, we're not talking about a noun being in construct with a verb. We're talking about a noun being in construct with an entire clause. And that's something that is grammatically possible. And we see it all over the place in the Hebrew Bible. So first part of the argument, Bereshit has a relative meaning. That I, I agree with that. Second part of the argument is this type of clause is possible a noun being in construct with a, uh, an entire clause. And I grant that too. That is possible. 
but I just say it it doesn't work for Genesis one one. Well, that's helpful to begin to sit, consider as we uh, have now talked about the trend trans. Excuse me, the traditional translation of Genesis one one, and now we've began to talk about the dependent clause translation of Genesis one one. Um, Doctor Wilson, you have written at least three articles. Um, perhaps they are written to different audiences or they have different degrees of levels of technicality in each of these um, articles. But um, we, in at least two of them, you kind of give um, your critique to the dependent clause translation. So uh, for this question, I want to ask you, what is a Hebrew relator noun? And how does our understanding of a Hebrew relator noun help us translate Genesis 1-1? Yeah, good question. And and I would say Hebrew relator noun, a relator noun. So um, that article um, that I wrote for the Answers Research Journal uh, that you're referring to, Austin, uh, deals with the first layer of the dependent clause translation argument, you know, there at the at the meaning of the word Bereshit, does it have a relative meaning? And so what I did in that article is I kind of said, we need to classify what we're talking about so that we can start examining more data. And so I classified uh, Bereshit, uh, again, this is the noun Reshit with the preposition, uh, the bait preposition. Um, but I classified that as a relator noun. And so there are all kinds of relator nouns in many languages, and relator nouns are nouns that have a relative meaning. So remember, this was the argument of the dependent clause translation with respect to Bereshit. It has a relative meaning, and and that's what relator nouns are. They they are nouns that that cannot really exist in and of themselves in in like in writing. They have to be related to something. So, for instance, beginning, um, end, front, back, left, right. All of these words have a relative meaning. And 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 so if we're talking about, for instance, the end or the, the front or the back, what the front of what? The back of what? What are you talking about? You have to supply some more meaning to know what what the it's the front of. So maybe we could say the front of the house, uh, the back of the house, the left side of the house, the right side of the house. Top is even a relator noun, the top of a house. So with respect to the word beginning in Genesis 1-1, um, there is no such thing as a beginning that is unrelated to anything. That's nonsense. Uh, beginning has to relate to something. Now, when I examined these relator nouns in Hebrew, so we start with reshit, um, the first word of the Bible, but I looked at other relator nouns in the Bible, and, and I realized, I saw, yeah, they do have this relative meaning, but remember the second part of the argument for the dependent clause. Because it has a relative meaning, it has to have a relative grammatical relationship. And so when I examined um, other relator nouns in the Hebrew Bible, I found that they don't always have to have a grammatical, a relative grammatical relationships. There are numerous examples 
where these kinds of relater nouns like beginning, end, front, back, left, right, um, they do have a, rel a relative meaning, but they stand alone grammatically. And the thing that they are related to is contextually given in that specific passage. So let me give you an example. You go to a movie theater and you sit down, you're watching a movie, it's over, the credits start to roll, and then as the very last portion of the credits roll, it says, the end. No one in the movie theater is going to stand up and say, stop the film, stop the film. We don't know what this is the end of. This word does not have a grammatical relationship with some other supplied noun, so I don't know what it's the end of. But we do. No one ever does that because the context supplies the the meaning that the end is related to it's the end of the movie and so this is the same for relater nouns in hebrew not just with bereshit but with other relater nouns they stand by themselves and they are uh related in meaning to some concept that's given by the context of the passage so with respect to genesis 1 1 we would say um bereshit can stand by itself. We can say in the beginning. We don't have to say in the beginning of, we can say in the beginning. And then the context supplies us with what that is the beginning of. It is the beginning of creation. And this also relates to another issue that proponents of the dependent clause translation had raised. And that was um, the word Bereshit in Genesis 1-1 doesn't have a definite article. It doesn't have the word the. And that was one of their arguments for uh, taking uh, the, the verse in the manner that they do as a dependent clause. Well, what I found in, in researching these relater nouns is that very frequently these relater nouns will occur with the definite article the but they will also occur without the definite article the, but the definite article the is implied again by the context of the passage. And so this, th these evidences of relater nouns in Hebrew just showed that the word Bereshit in Genesis 1-1 can stand by itself. It doesn't have to have a definite article and we can still translate it as in the beginning and then make it a, an independent clause. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, I have many questions that have popped <laughs> to my mind uh, as you're giving your answer to that last question I gave you, gave you, but I'm trying to remember that this is not a CBTS <laughs> Hebrew class. This is an episode of our podcast recording, so um, I'll just hold my questions and perhaps ask you at a later time. So that way we stick with uh, our outline. Thank you for your answer on the Hebrew yeah. uh, relater noun. No problem. Um, but uh, I want to move on to another article that you've written about uh, related to Hebrew genitive clauses. So how does our understanding of a Hebrew genitive clause help us to translate Genesis 1-1 now? Sure. So, um, Again, we when we're talking about the dependent clause translation, it's multi-layered. So this is this article that I wrote was addressing the second layer, and that is the relationship of clauses to each other. And um, so, 
what when we talk about a genitive clause, we need to describe it a little bit. Uh, a genitive clause is a type. We would say it is a type of nominalized clause. All right. So, Dewey, here's what I mean by that. All right. So I'm trying my best to keep it at your level as, as best I can. But a nominalized clause is a clause that can function as a noun, as some kind of substantive. So we're talking about an entire clause that can be the subject of a clause, it can, uh, an entire clause that can be the direct object, or an entire clause that can be like the object of a preposition. And so with respect to Genesis 1.1, um, if we're calling it a genitive clause, we're saying that it is the object of a preposition, the the bait preposition. That's the b when we say the the word bereshit. Um, and so, uh, what other scholars have done is they've they've narrowed down even more uh, a, a category for this. Um, um, uh, Martin Boston calls it. Um, uh, an ascendetic nominalized clause. Robert Homestead calls it a restrictive relative clause. And those are all great categories. But broadly speaking, we can say that this is a type of genitive clause. And if we if we categorize it broadly, then we can find many examples of this type of clause in biblical Hebrew. And so what I did in that article on the genitive clause is I gathered together a pool of over 200 genitive clauses. I went to uh, some of the reference grammars like um, Walt Key O'Connor and Jacinius Couch Cali and Juan Maroka. And so from all of those grammars, I was able to pull together 200 genitive clauses. And, and what I learned as I did that research is when we're talking about a genitive clause being a, a nominalized clause, a clause that can that can function as a noun, whether it be as a subject, a direct object, or an object of a preposition, um, we're talking about clauses that are actually elements of uh, another clause. So these nominalized clauses of which genitive clauses belong participate in a a main clause. I mean, think about it. If they can be a subject, then the the clause, this nominalized clause, can be the subject of a larger main clause. If there's a direct object, they can be the direct object of a larger main clause. In the case of Genesis 1-1, it's the object of a preposition. If, if we're making the case that for the dependent clause translation, we would say, Genesis 1.1 is the object of the preposition bait in Bereshit. So it's in this prepositional phrase, but that prepositional phrase is functioning within a larger main clause. And what is that main clause? Well, again, today, most proponents of the dependent clause translation argue that it is participating in Genesis 1.3. So when I analyzed the data of all of these types of genitive clauses, I found that these types of genitive clauses that participate in larger main clauses are very rarely separated from their main clauses. And one of the ways they could be separated is by uh, what I would call like a clause level vav, 
that can separate a genitive clause from its main clause. Um, a verse ending sof pasuk. So this is one of those cantillation marks of the Masoretes. Um, uh, a, a genitive clause could be separated from its main clause by another clause. All right. But that that does happen. But I found that it rarely happens. I'm talking about um, 90 high 90th percentile. The genitive clause is not being separated from the main clause in any of these ways. High 90th percentile. However, with respect to Genesis 1 1, if proponents of the dependent clause translation want to say it's a genitive clause, then what they have to acknowledge is that Genesis 1 1, as a genitive clause participating in Genesis 1 3, is separated from that clause by a clause level Vav consecutive by a sof pasuk, and by the three other clauses of Genesis 1-2. And I found that, that that is unparalleled in the entire, in the entire pool of examples that, that I was using. That, that separation of Genesis 1-1, if it is a genitive clause, from its main clause in Genesis 1-3, just unparalleled. You don't see any kind of separation like that in that pool of 200 clauses. And so because of that, you know, I made the point that, you know, although uh, a genitive clause is possible, I mean, that's clearly uh, the case, doesn't really, it, it just seems like it's near impossible that it could be so in Genesis 1-1. Well, Dr. Wilson, as we all know, um, not only do we possess a theological framework, but we bring our theological frameworks to every passage that we seek to translate and interpret. And uh, there's no such thing as being theologically neutral when we come to God's word. So uh, as I just think about everything that you've touched on, as we've gotten into some of the weeds of of Hebrew and Genesis 1-1, are there any theological ideas that could potentially influence how one goes about translating Genesis 1-1? And on the other side, should somebody deviate from the traditional way of interpreting Genesis 1-1, what are some theological implications that are going to likely come from going that route in translation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I would say probably the greatest theological implication for going with the dependent clause translation, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, he said, and you have that stuff in Genesis 1-2, uh, there, when he begins this process, uh, you lose the doctrine of creation out of nothing, because there's no explanation for where the the elements in Genesis one two come from, and the proponents of this translation uh, make this case. So I, I think, for ex for instance, of Harry Orlinsky. Um, he was one of the, the editors behind the, the new Jewish translation um, of the Old Testament. And um, in his translation of Genesis in the preface, uh, he kind of makes the claim that some people are going to have a problem with this translation because it, it does away with the doctrine of creation out of nothing. And he kind of grants that it does. And he says, however, that's not our concern. 
Our concern is to faithfully translate the passage the way it's supposed to be translated. And that also applies to um, uh, proponents of what we would call the um, the summary statement interpretation. So um, that that's something for later, but the uh, summary statement interpretation uh, also sees Genesis 1-2 as stuff that was there at the beginning of creation. So if you can't account for what's there in Genesis 1-2, that it's there beforehand, then you're you're almost abandoning the doctrine of creation out of nothing. So I have a quote that I wanted to read to you guys from Bruce Waltke in his um, uh, Old Testament theology. So he says this, when the writer of Hebrews, so this, so he's one of those proponents that, that believes there's no, there's no explanation for where the stuff in Genesis 1-2 comes from. And, and watch his train of thought with respect to other passages. He says, when the writer of Hebrews says the universe was formed at God's command, he must have excluded the dark abyss of Genesis 1-2. So that, that's what he's referring to when he says the dark abyss. For it existed apart from and before God's commands. John says, through the word, or I'm sorry, through all, uh, that is the word, Jesus Christ, all things were made. But our darkness and the abyss, again, the abyss of Genesis 1-2, ever conceptualized as made in the Bible? The inspired author of Job represents the primeval sea as bursting forth from the womb of the earth and God as wrapping the sea in thick darkness. But no clear biblical text testifies to the origins of chaos, that is the stuff in Genesis 1-2, or of the serpent, nor the reason for their existence. Now, that's that's problematic when you start to lose the doctrine of creation out of nothing, because when you lose that, you start to lose the doctrine of God. Um, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote, um, and, and this was a work called Against Hermogenes, and he's dealing specifically with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he says, if we can't, if we don't have a way to say that this stuff in Genesis 1-2 was created, then we have no right to call God Lord, for that stuff was there when he had already been in existence. It was there in existence with him. And so we have no right to call him Lord. And I, I just think of Anselm. And his arguments, um, uh, his argument, um, I can't remember the name of the argument. Dewey, you would know this, his his famous argument. Um, I think it's the, oh, what what is it, Dewey? What's the name of that argument? Well, uh, it could be the argument from Bean. Are you, are you talking about the argument from Bean? Or... Yeah, I think so. But it's the one where he begins, God is a being of which none greater can be imagined. So that's yeah, the beginning. The, ontolo the ontological argument. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's what it is. The ontological argument. So he says, God is a being of which none greater can be imagined. If you get rid of the doctrine of not of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, mm -hmm. I can now think of a being greater than God. And so if you lose the doctrine of creation out of nothing, that begins to affect the doctrine of God. And if it begins to affect the doctrine of God, then it begins to affect all of those other doctrines as well, all of the other doctrines that we hold to. So that is that is one of the implications, one of the dangerous implications of retranslating 
and reinterpreting Genesis 1-1. Absolutely. It's very well said, Dr. Wilson. And I mean, I just thank you. Just piggybacking off of what you were alluding to there, um, if if the matter or if the substance of Genesis one two is eternal, that it's that it's not created, then on what basis do we have for establishing a creator creature distinction? We have yep. we have none. You have essentially cre- you have created matter or uncreated matter matter of some sort that's not God that is just as eternal as God, or at least we don't have an explanation for why it's there in the first place. So that's very well said. Uh, I think it's very helpful to our listeners as well, thinking through some of the implications that come along with the way that we not only translate Genesis 1-1, but also interpret that verse in light of the rest of Scripture. Well, Dr. Wilson, as we prepare to come to a close for this discussion, it's been very thought-provoking for me. It's It's been uh, extremely helpful and uh, makes me makes me want to go and sharpen up my Hebrew a little bit and, and dive into these weeds maybe at greater length. But uh Hey, I know a class you can take. <laughs> yeah, well, when I when I finish my my uh, doctoral work, I'm, I might have to go and 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 sharpen my biblical languages because uh, I'm swamped right now. But hearing you guys go back and forth has really been uh, you know a great encouragement to me to to regard the biblical languages with great importance and and to dive deeper into into those realities as well. But on that note, on the on the issue of the biblical languages, specifically Hebrew. Do you have anything else that you want to share? Any final thoughts related to Genesis 1-1, uh, competing Hebrew translations of the text, anything else relevant to the issues we've discussed today? The floor is yours as we draw everything to a close. Sure, and I'll, I'll try to be brief here, but we've just covered half of the issue with respect to Genesis 1-1. We were dealing with its translation. Um, there's another half all dealing with the interpretation of the passage. Mm-hmm. And like I had alluded to earlier, there are some scholars who who actually support the traditional translation in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but they don't support the traditional interpretation of the passage. What they often do or what they do, and this is called like the summary statement interpretation is they will argue that Genesis 1-1 should be seen as like a title and that the narrative doesn't begin until Genesis 1-2. So if you think of like, for instance, Psalm 3, in the Hebrew of Psalm 3, I know they don't bring this out in English Bibles. I think the, the Legacy Standard Bible does this now, but in the Hebrew of Psalm 3, verse 1 in the Hebrew is a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And then verse two, oh Lord, how many are my foes? So it gets underway. And so in that particular Psalm, verse one is the title, but verse two is actually the start of the Psalm. Verse one and verse two just kind of don't have a grammatical or semantic connection with each other. Verse one and two. Uh, And so that would be, uh, that's because of verse one just being the title. Well, the summary statement proponents will say that that's how we take Genesis 1-1. It's a summary of the creation narrative in Genesis 1. Genesis 1-2 then starts the narrative. And so verse one and verse two have no grammatical or semantic connection with each other. And uh, Bruce Waltke you know, well-known for his Old Testament theology, well-known for his uh, Hebrew reference grammar, him and Michael O'Connor. 
but he he was one of the first major proponents of this view in evangelicalism. And I actually have uh, an article coming out in the next couple of weeks with the Answers Research Journal that's going to address that particular view, and it's going to be uh, part one of a two-part article series. Uh, but that, I guess that's how I'll close. We just dealt with half of the issue. There's another entire half to deal with. Well, there you go, listeners, especially those who are in seminary or who are serving in pastoral ministry or a combination of the two. Um, get out your your Hebrew Bibles, get into uh, those classrooms and into those contexts where you can delve into these matters further. Uh, Dr. Wilson has pro certainly provided us with a lot to think about uh, on those subjects. And Dr. Wilson, again, thank you so much for your service to Christ Church and for coming on the Covenant Podcast today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And to our listeners, as always, we do want to thank you for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. And until next time, we wish you grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless.